0: Uh, Last Sunday, we looked at John's account of the crucifixion and death of Jesus. We saw how John, the human author of the gospel we've been studying for, for a while now, we saw how he meticulously threaded fulfilled prophecies and predictions into his narrative and statements that reveal that Jesus had sovereign control over the situation, all for the purpose of supporting John's main theme of his gospel, which is the messiahship and deity of Jesus Christ. We also discovered what Jesus accomplished when he died. Um, These are familiar truths. It was more like a refresher course for most of us, but uh, that he, you know, he satisfied the righteous requirements of God's law. He appeased the wrath of God. He secured our forgiveness, our righteousness, Our reconciliation with God, since we're all sinners and gone astray. And ultimately, he defeated the devil. You know, that passage in Genesis 3:15 where the ancient serpent's head was crushed by him. And so we kind of looked at those things last week. And I'll just begin by saying, uh, today we're going to be looking at the burial of Jesus. And the burial of Jesus is an essential component of the gospel. Uh, The Bible tells us that the gospel has three essential components. I mean, the gospel is vast, it's, it's, you know, it's immeasurable. I mean, you're talking about the work of God on our behalf. Dan pointed to it earlier, how it's, it's something that we can kind of comprehend, but not get our arms fully around, because it's kind of beyond our understanding. But we can get the basics of it. And the Bible does um, promote and explain or define the gospel as three simple components Uh, And one example would be in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, where the Apostle Paul put it like this. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance, like something that I gave to you, something that I imparted to you, something that I told you was of the highest level of importance, of first importance. And he says this, What I also received, and here's the important thing that he delivered to them, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So basically, the Gospel in its simplest form is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to 1 Corinthians and what the Scripture teaches. When we encourage people uh, to become disciples of our Lord and Savior, we, we tell them that they must what? Repent of their unbelief. And they must believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Right? So you see the burial plainly in that description. Now, if you've attended this church for any length of time, you know that I like to add the life of Jesus to that, to that group of theological realities. I, I like to tell people to believe in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And the reason why I bring his life into it is because I want people to know where their righteousness comes from. It comes from his perfect life, not anything that we do. So I kind of add that to it, and I think Scripture gives allowance for that, because we would never tell people that the life of Jesus is not important, just believe in His death, burial, and resurrection. Without His life, there's no righteousness. There's nothing. Of the three essential components that I've just given to you, the the death, burial, and resurrection, which one of them gets the most attention? Obviously, the death of Jesus. I mean, pastors and Christians are always talking about the cross and the death of Jesus. Uh, The death of Jesus on the cross is is a primary subject, and rightfully so. It's not wrong to, to give that one a kind of preeminence in a sense. Which one gets the second most attention of the three? The resurrection of Jesus, right? I mean, we have no choice but to talk about it once a year. Easter time. And I, I say we have no choice, like it's some kind of a burden. What I'm saying is we ought to be talking about the resurrection all the time. But for the most part, out of the gospel trio, it gets the second most attention. It's, it's mentioned fairly regularly around here throughout the year, especially at Easter time. So that leaves only one. Which one gets the least amount of attention? The burial of Jesus. The burial of Jesus gets about as much attention as the ascension of Jesus which is another key doctrine that is basically forgotten. Just think about the burial of Jesus. When is the last time you heard a sermon on the burial of Jesus? When is the last time you discussed the burial of Jesus with some other believer? When's the last time you had a theological conversation or debate over the burial of Jesus? It's not a doctrine that we focus on very often. If ever... It's not a subject we study regularly or discuss with others. And yet, it is an essential component of the gospel. According to Scripture, especially 1 Corinthians, the passage I just read you, 15, 3 and 4, it is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So this morning, we are going to examine the burial of Jesus. And we will discover why it's essential, why it is so important. Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 42 today. That will be our text for this morning. At this point in the narrative, uh, Jesus has given up his spirit. He has died and his body was still hanging on the cross. Now we can pick up where we left off last Sunday. Please look at verses 31 and 32 with me. Verse 31 begins, "...since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath..." You have a parenthetical, it says, "...for that the Sabbath was a high day." "...the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, and that they might be taken away." Verse 32, "...so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other, who had been crucified with him." Speaking of Jesus. So the first thing John does here is he kind of transitions into the burial of Jesus. He he reminds us of when this took place. This this was all happening at a particular moment in history, and he says it was the day of preparation, and it's actually still the day of preparation, which is on that Friday. Jesus' trial before Pilate, his crucifixion, his death, and his burial all occurred on the day of preparation or this Friday. And the day of preparation is referred to as such because the Jews had to literally get everything ready on the day of preparation for the following day, which was the Sabbath day, a Saturday. The Jews actually celebrate Sabbath on Saturdays. Christians do it on Sundays. And so they had to get All of their chores done on Friday, they had to get all of their meal prep and everything uh, that would cause them to work on Saturday, they had to get all of that work done on Friday during the day of preparation. Everything had to be done. Uh, According to their traditions, they cannot perform those work-based tasks on Saturday during the Sabbath. They would violate the Sabbath if, if they were to f- be found cooking on the Sabbath. So they had to do all the cooking and all the prep and all the work on the day of preparation, Friday. Now John adds a parenthetical statement to heighten the importance of this particular Sabbath day. This wasn't just a regular Sabbath, which is a high day. This was the, a Sabbath that was a higher day. He, he calls it the high day here because that people would be eating the Passover meal during this particular Sabbath. Passover is the big feast and celebration that comes once a year, and they would actually eat the Passover meal together, all the Jews would, on that Sabbath during that weekly feast. And so this is a high Sabbath because it's Passover Sabbath as well. And what happened here was the religious leaders, the Jews as they're referred to here, They were concerned about optics. They were concerned about potentially breaking the Sabbath. Having three crucified individuals languishing on a hill that overlooked the temple would not be a pleasing sight to the the many people who would come into the temple courts to to worship the Lord uh, on that Saturday during that Sabbath. They come to bring their offerings and all of that. And so literally Golgotha overlooks the temple grounds and, and, you know, can you imagine going to church that day and you've got, you know, you can see clearly, I mean, it's in the distance, but you can still see clearly men dying on crosses. That would not be a good optic for the Jewish religious leaders at the temple. Uh, if we had three guys on crosses in the corner here, it would be hard for you to focus on what I'm doing, would it not? And so they have a hard time with the optic here. We, we don't want people seeing that. And experiencing that as they're trying to focus on buying the things that are necessary for worship, which will impact our bottom line. That's really what's driving them here. They're really concerned about making appropriate sales on all the, the animals that will you know, be sacrificed and all that. They're worried that that's just going to ruin the whole vibe in the temple. Many of these worshipers that would come into the temple on that Sabbath the next day, you know, you got those crosses in the background, those guys dying on the crosses. Many of those worshipers would actually have to pass by Golgotha on their way into the city. So you've got an issue with optics there as well. Do we really want, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people walking by those crosses as they enter the city? to buy the sacrificial elements and and to worship the Lord. Is that what we want? So they had an issue with that visual as well. In particular, the religious leaders did not want those folks to walk by those crosses and to see the sign that was hanging above Jesus's head, right? It was a highly offensive sign to most pious Jews, especially the religious leaders. It was the sign that that Pilate had you know, inscribed and had fixed above Jesus' head, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And it was written in three languages, so every pilgrim there could read it. This is not something the religious leaders wanted their parishioners to see. Plus, if one of those crucified individuals died during the Sabbath, the religious leaders would have a major, major problem on their hands. The Mosaic Law, which is their highest law, that's the law that you actually find in Scripture. It's not their traditions. It's actual God's law. The Mosaic Law says that executed criminals must be buried before nightfall. Okay, They have to be taken. If they've died on the cross or if they've died somewhere else or whatever, they have to be on that same day that they die. They have to be buried, placed in a tomb, prepared, all of that. It has to be done before the sun goes down. If they don't hit that mark and they go past the the sunset and the sun going down, then the land would be defiled, according to Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. So they had a a major issue here. If Jesus or one of those robbers that's on the cross dies tomorrow, we're going to have to take him off the cross, and we're going to have to bury him before sundown, or we're going to break Mosaic law. But at the same time, they had that tradition in place that said that is unlawful, to perform work, to carry, to drag, to dig, to roll a stone. They had that in place for the Sabbath as well. So if one of them died on the Sabbath, it's like we have to bury him before sundown, but if we do it, then we violate our tradition. They were in a lose-lose situation here. But the tradition is not law. It's just tradition. And Jesus broke their traditions regularly, never broke God's law, what actually matters. So the religious leaders were in a situation here where they were like literally probably hoping and praying that nobody died on the Sabbath day because they'd have to bury him, but then they'd violate their tradition and they wouldn't be able to eat the actual Passover meal that evening. So they had this situation. But I say you're worried about Mosaic law, which is something to be concerned about, but you're worried about a tradition that you made that limits what you can do on the Sabbath. You're concerned about Mosaic law. You're concerned about your tradition. But you're not concerned about the fact that you just murdered your Messiah. Talk about, you know, adventures and missing the point. You just killed your Savior. You just slaughtered him. And you're concerned about whether you can get a body buried or not, or whether you have to handle his body and break your traditions. You you, you know, the legalist has really no concept of the deeper things of the law, and what is truly pleasing to God. They murdered his son, and they're concerned about these things. So to avoid this potential major dilemma, this problem that they were now in, the religious leaders, they go to Pilate, and they literally begged him to expedite the process. They wanted his soldiers to perform fragem which is a, a difficult Latin word to say, fragum." What is crurifragm? It is the the smashing of the legs of a person with an iron mallet. It's something that the Romans did. there was somebody hanging on the cross and they wanted to get that person to die sooner than later, then they would perform crurifragm and they would go and, and they would smash the criminal's legs with the mallet, breaking his legs. And that would expedite the whole death scenario. This gruesome procedure would would hasten death by bringing on asphyxiation. The victim would not be able to use his legs to prop himself up so he can breathe. If you don't have leg strength or your legs are hurting so bad that you can't use them, your body's going to sag and now your organs and everything are going to get pressed in upon by your rib cage, your lungs included. And what they would do is once the legs were broken, they would try to use their arms to hold them in place. But imagine you've got nails through your wrists or through your hands, that hurts. But once the arm strength gave out, you've got no legs now, but once your arms gave out, then you would you would just relax your body and that's where you would begin to suffocate. Query fragile was considered merciful to the Romans because it, it hastened death and, and reduced down the suffering. Because some people would be on the cross for several days. And so the Romans were like, well, we're, we're, i tell you what, we're going we're gonna to do you a blessing. We're going to break your legs. I mean, that's just so cruel. I, I'm reminded of the words of Solomon in Proverbs 12, uh, verse 10b, where he literally says, the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Because I tell you what, it might be merciful because you'll die sooner, but it's going to hurt. That's going to be cruel to crush. Could you imagine having your legs bashed in with an iron mallet with a sledgehammer? That's going to hurt. In an effort to avoid further trouble with the religious leaders, because Pilate's had all sorts of bad experiences with them this day. They blackmailed him. Hey, if you don't execute Jesus, we'll go ahead and tell the... The Caesar, well, we'll let Tiberius know that you let an insurrectionist live, right? They've already blackmailed him. He's had a terrible time with them this day. And ever since he took office seven years earlier, nothing but trouble with the religious leaders. What does he do here when they come and ask, hey, can you speed it up? He obliges them. And he gave the order to the soldiers. And and soldiers went up. And these soldiers were with him. He was in Jerusalem at the time. These soldiers made the short journey up to Golgotha right outside the city gate. And they went over there and smashed the legs of the two robbers, the ones who were crucified on both sides of Jesus. Now we move to 33 and 35. It says, "...but when they came to Jesus and saw that He was already dead, they did not break His legs. But one of the soldiers pierced His side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water." In verse 35, "...he who saw it has borne witness, His testimony is true." And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. So after smashing the robbers' legs, their legs are bashed in. They're now sagging and suffocating. After doing that, they go to Jesus, who's in the middle, to repeat the process. But the soldiers realize he's already passed away. He's already breathed his last breath. He's already dead. And I tell you, it had to be a surprise to them. I know that it came as a surprise to them because it was not normal for a crucified victim to die so soon. It was not normal for one to die after only a few hours. In fact, Jesus had been on the cross for only six hours. They usually lasted two or three days. And if the soldiers did a really, really creative and good job of nailing somebody to the cross, they could get a whole week out of them. And so they they had to be marveling at the fact that Jesus was already dead. Pilate was surprised when he found out that Jesus had died so quickly. And over in Mark 15, 44, when Joseph comes to him and asks for the body, he's like, what are you talking about? You want the body? He's not dead yet. Yeah, he is already dead. How could he already be dead? He's only been on there for six hours. So he marveled at the fact that Jesus was already dead. The soldiers were marveling at this. They went up to break his legs, but he's not even moving. They can't believe it. He should still be alive. The question is, why did he die so quickly? You know, well, some say that he simply succumbed to his injuries, you know the injuries that he had sustained at the praetorium, uh, that those injuries played into it and and lessened his death. And I've played on that a little bit. I think that if he hadn't been crucified, he would have eventually died from his wounds because his wounds were so serious. So some people say it's because of the wounds that he sustained at the praetorium before being nailed to the cross. That's what contributed to a, a quick death. Others say that, hey, pal, why don't you try bearing the wrath of God? Anyone who would bear the wrath of God would not survive that, you know. And somehow, people bear the wrath of God for all eternity and never die in hell. But I, I think those answers fall short, those explanations fall short. Severe injuries and the wrath of God may have been factors, but I, I'm pretty sure John gave us the clear answer back in verse 30. Jesus finished the work that he had Came to accomplish. He finished the work of redemption. It was done. And then immediately following the finishing of that work, he gave up his spirit. Why hang around on the cross after the work is done? Think about it. He finished the work. He had suffered tremendously, worse than anyone in the history of the world had ever suffered because he bore our sin in the wrath of God. The work is done. There's no reason to stay on the cross beyond six hours. I'm just thinking logically here. But greater than that, you must remember that Jesus was following the entire time. He was following a divine timeline. We we see expressions of it in John 2, 4, in chapter 7, verse 6, chapter 7, verse 30, chapter 8, verse 20. All of the times that Jesus said, my time has not yet come when people were trying to get him to do things. That's not my time to do that. He even rebuked his mother when she wanted him to dazzle everyone and turn the water into wine, which he ended up obliging her on. He operated in accordance with a divine timeline. Everything that he did was done at the precise moments that he was supposed to do those things, even dying on the cross. It could be that if he had not of His own sovereign will, surrendered His life in that moment. He, in a sense, ended His life that He would have never died. I don't know. This divine timeline was in accordance with the definite predetermined plan of God, Acts 2.23. Think of it like this. Jesus was supposed to die when He died. His death came not too soon, nor too late. It came exactly when it was supposed to come. And he willed for it to be in that moment. He took his own life in a sense. He he surrendered his spirit and submitted his soul to the Father in that moment. It's an interesting, amazing thing. When the soldiers realized he was already dead, they didn't bash his legs. There was no reason to do that. But one of them took a spear and pierced his side. The spear tip obviously penetrated the sack around his heart because a mixture of blood and water poured out of the wound. When a person experiences significant blood loss, and he certainly did because of the flogging, he had been filleted open. He had bled everywhere. It's a, in my mind, it's it's borderline a miracle that he was still alive. I don't think anyone else were to survive that, but he had lost a lot of blood. And when a person loses significant blood, they go into hypovolemic shock. What happens is the heart begins to race. What it's doing is it's trying to pump blood that is not there. And because of that extra activity and that hyper heartbeat, the heart is doing its job, but it's almost in a panic where it's it's trying to pump something that's not there. And as it does that, guess what happens? Water collects around the heart. Water collects around the heart, in, into the heart sac and around the heart sac, and even around the lungs. The symptoms of hypovolemic shock are faintness, thirst, and the collection of water around the heart. We know Jesus experienced hypovolemic shock after being flogged because each of these symptoms were literally present. While carrying his crossbar to Golgotha, he fainted. He fell down. He couldn't do it. And a guy named Simon the Cyrene was was forced to help him carry the cross all the way up there. Luke 23, 26. Faintness was there. While he was still alive on the cross, did he not cry out, I thirst? Right? Verse 28. We know that he was fulfilling, seeking to fulfill prophecy there, but that doesn't mean his tongue wasn't stuck to the roof of his mouth. It was. It says in Psalm 22, that thousand-year-old prophecy that talked about his thirst. Hypovolemic shock, faintness, thirst. And when that soldier drove that spear through his side, thus penetrating his heart sack, what came out? Blood mingled with water. The symptoms were all there. He had this. He was suffering from it. MacArthur suggests that when, when Jesus' heart was pierced by that soldier, he says this, his heart literally burst from the tremendous mental agony and sorrow associated with his work of of bearing sin and and bearing the father's wrath and and bearing the forsaken dynamic that's there of of the father turning his, his face away from the son. All of that created this stress put all of that pressure on his physiology. And when that soldier drove that spear through, it just burst and and just came out of him. And when we experience extreme mental duress, we sometimes feel as if our heart is going to explode. Have you ever gone through something that was so emotionally painful you actually felt pain in the middle of your chest and you thought, I think I'm having a heart attack? happens. In verse 35, John tells his readers that, that he was actually there at the foot of the cross and that he saw these things happen with his own eyes. He wanted his readers to know that as a firsthand witness to these events, his testimony is true and can be trusted. And I think this is an interesting statement you see there. It's like, why Do you interrupt the burial narrative to make that statement, to make that proclamation? I suspect it's because he was seeking to combat false theories about Jesus' death that may have been in circulation when he recorded his account or false theories about Jesus' death and burial that would come later. I think he was dealing with some of the false theories that were around when he wrote this, I mean, he wrote this gospel probably in the early 90s, way after the other accounts had been recorded. There were already all sorts of weird theories and heresies. You know, they were abounding by the time he gets to writing this. Uh, One such theory that's around, it's been around for a long time. I don't know if it dates back to then, but it's certainly around now. But one such goofy, weird, ridiculous theory is the swoon theory. The swoon theory. The swoon theory is, is the belief that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. He was merely unconscious. And after being placed in, in the tomb, he basically awoke and then strolled out. You know, Never mind the fact that he'd been stabbed. Never mind the fact that he'd been filleted open. I went to a website. It's entirely about this. I felt like I had to take a shower after being at the website. It was just weird and dirty. You know, it was just like, what are you people trying to do? What they're ultimately trying to do is deny the resurrection. If we can deny the death, then there's no resurrection. Then he's not God, right? That's the enemy's, you know, real purpose there. And they say that his post-tomb appearances were merely perceived as resurrection appearances by his followers. Well, look, he rose. Well, no, he actually woke up. That's what they say. An 18th century adherent to this theory, Heinrich Paulus, provides a bizarre explanation for what happened here. I think he was a big supporter of aromatherapy. I'm not making fun of you if you are one. Uh, You know, I've burned my share of incense back in my 1985 hippie days. Um, But I think he was a big supporter of of aromatherapy way back uh, before it was really a thing. Listen to what he wrote. The lance thrust was a mere surface wound that served the purpose of phlebotomy. And listen to this. The cool grave and the aromatic unguents, there's the aromatherapy, continued the process of resuscitation until finally the storm and the earthquake, which, by the way, happened when he died, not when he was buried, uh, until the, finally the storm and the earthquake aroused Jesus to full consciousness. Yeah. So you got the myrrh, you've got the, you know, the aromatic things in there. You know, you've got some stuff happening outside of the tomb, and all of it together somehow woke him up. You know, like he was a really sound sleeper, and then one strike of lightning and thunder, whatever. And this is this is a theory, but this is a perpetuated belief by multitudes of people. They literally believe in the swoon theory. And there, there were so many things. I was like, how many of these should I write down? Stick to the text, just do one. But, right, it's like there are so many things that they've said to explain this away. One guy down in L.A., more recent, uh, he, he really took it to another level. He was a medical physician. But he gave a medical physician's, you know, analysis of it. I'm like, hey, bozo, you weren't there. You know, but somehow you know 2,000 years later. So my question to you is, who are we to believe? Who are we to believe? Those who are neither enlightened nor were there? Heinrich Paulus and all the other deniers? Or are we to believe an actual disciple and physical witness? John, who was there, who tells us, I was there, I saw it. I saw how they were going to break his legs, but they didn't. I saw them stab him. I heard his final words. He was dead. He literally tells us he saw Jesus die with his own eyes. And I would venture to say he even heard Jesus take his last breath as recorded in Mark 15, 37. So we believe the testimony of Scripture. We believe in John's accurate testimony, an actual physical witness who was there. We don't believe the, you know, the, the, the silly ideas of those who ultimately just hate God and that's what they do now we move to 36 and 37 for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled not one of his bones will be broken and then verse 37 again scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced so john tells us there was a divine sovereign purpose behind the speedy death of jesus That's what He's telling us. There was something going on. There's a bigger purpose here for the expedited death of Jesus than than maybe what our imaginations would like to tell us. If Jesus had not died during that ninth hour, like roughly three o'clock, what would have happened? What would the soldiers have done? They would have broke His legs just like they broke the two robbers' legs, right? They would have performed the same process to expedite death on Jesus. But since he was already dead, they did not perform the procedure. Not breaking his legs, however, fulfilled a typological prophecy, and we find it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It says that when the Israelites partook of the Passover supper, they were not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb or the Paschal lamb. You see, they would take this lamb and they would prepare this lamb and they would eat that lamb that night during the Passover supper. And uh, one of the requirements was, and this goes all the way back to Exodus, is that don't break any bones in the lamb. The lamb is to be sacrificed to me in a sense, and it is to be a perfect blemishless animal. So you can't break the bones, it can't have any defects or anything like that. And so this is is literally something that was said in Exodus 12.46. But since Jesus is our true Paschal Lamb, since He is our true Passover Lamb, since He is our final Passover Lamb, says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, none of His bones were to be broken. If He is the Passover Lamb representing the Lamb of old, then He equally cannot have any broken bones if He's to be the Passover Lamb. Were His bones broken? No, verse 33. Why? Because he had already expired. You see the connection there? You see how God's timing works? Jesus died right when he died. If he had not, his legs would have been broken. This prophecy wouldn't have been fulfilled. He wouldn't have been our Passover lamb. He died when he was supposed to die. Not breaking Jesus' legs also fulfilled a messianic prophecy in Psalm 3420, which clearly states that the Messiah shall receive no broken bones. That's the actual passage that John cites at the end of verse 36. Not one of his bones will be broken. He's quoting that psalm. To ensure that Jesus was fully dead, the soldiers took that spear and thrust it under or through his ribcage into his heart. John ties that act to Zechariah 12.10 which is a prophecy that speaks of the repentance and salvation of many Jews. God will pour out His grace and mercy upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, They will look to God for salvation, and they will see Him whom they pierced, the Lord Jesus. And they, what, shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. So in the piercing of him, that sets the stage for another fulfilled prophecy. MacArthur wrote, The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy will be at Christ's second coming, when the repentant remnant of Israel will mourn over rejecting and killing their king. Revelation 1-7. So again, we see the fulfillment of messianic prophecy here in the death and even leading up to the burial of Jesus, which what? serves John's primary purpose of authenticating the messiahship and deity of Jesus Christ. Now we can move to 38. John continues explaining what happened. He says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body John introduces us here to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was from Arimathea. That wasn't his last name, just like Magdalene is not Mary's last name. And Arimathea translated actually means a city of the Jews. It was located in Judea and may have been called Ramah in the Old Testament. How many of you know where or what Ramah is? Ramah is the birth and burial place of the prophet Samuel, one of the great prophets of Israel. Joseph of Arimathea here was a disciple of Jesus, John tells us, but he kept it a secret because he feared the religious leaders. The penalty for following Jesus was removal from the synagogue. It was excommunication. Uh, In ancient Israel, Judaism was a, a, a way of life. It wasn't just a religion or something that people do on Sundays or on Saturdays. It was your entire way of life. It was a worldview. It was an operating system that governed and controlled everything that you did. And so those who were put out of the synagogue, they lost everything. They lost it all. They lost their temple privileges. They couldn't attend synagogue. They lost their marriage if they were married. They lost their family. They lost their homes. They lost their friends. They lost their job. They lost their social standings. All of those things were gone, destroyed, removed forever. Um, I would say that excommunicants were treated like lepers. People hated them. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, everyone knew, everyone ridiculed you, and everyone stayed away from you. You were... Cursed. Obviously, you had no salvation. Because if you're disconnected from the religion, there's no salvation. So what I'm telling you is that Joseph of Arimathea had a lot to lose. He had a lot to lose. And Scripture further describes him, not here in John, but in the other Gospels. He was a rich man, Matthew 27, 57. He was a respected member of the council, which means Sanhedrin. He was on the Sanhedrin. Mark 15, 43. And he had a solid, godly reputation as a good and righteous man in the community, Luke 23, 50. He had a lot to lose. And I think it's easy for us to look at this text and, oh, look, what a, what a wimp, what a sissy la la. He kept his faith secret because of fear of the Jews. You know, I, w- I would never do that. You know, I, I've always been open and honest about my faith and about my relationship with Jesus. I think it's easy for us to kind of conjure those thoughts here. But let's be honest. Have any of us ever been in his situation? We live in the U.S., We don't know persecution here. We have no concept of what it's like. I just want you to imagine with me here, a government official, someone who has the the power of the sword, comes to you and says to you, denounce Jesus or lose everything. Lose your job, lose your standing, lose your family, lose your marriage, lose your home. Lose your church. Deny him or lose it all. Would you do this? If you were put in a situation where you had to give up everyone you love and everything that is meaningful to you, deny or lose it all, what would you do? That is the situation he was in. What a fool. I can't believe he denied the Lord. I would have stood up there. You wouldn't have done jack squat. You would have said, I never knew the Lord. You would have been like Peter in the courtyard. I know I would have been. Let's give the man a break. Let's give him a little grace here. He was facing a lot. And we're no better than him. We are no better than him. And it's interesting to me. The demand that a government official would put on us or that the Sanhedrin would put on him Jesus does in the reverse. It is the requirement of Jesus that we be ready and willing to forsake anything and all things for him at any given moment. The cost of discipleship is great. So, what does that mean? It means that Joseph was being sinful. He was, in a sense, denying his Lord in front of men. Was he not? It's sinful when we do this. When we... I'm not going to talk about Jesus right now, even though you know the Spirit's prompting you to do that, and you say, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to face the embarrassment or the trouble. It's sinful what Joseph did. It's sinful when we choose out of fear or whatever to essentially deny the Lord. And yet, it's the cost of discipleship is to be ready and willing to forsake all. But something happened inside of Joseph of Arimathea. This is the beauty of it. He didn't stay in this mode. He became convicted and he decided that he could no longer hide his faith. He went to the praetorium and he asked to meet the most brutal and dangerous man in Jerusalem. The one who had just put his Lord and Savior to death, Pontius Pilate. It's incredible to me. He didn't know what to expect from Pilate. Pilate had just put his Lord and Savior to death. He probably expected, look, man, this is a 50-50. He could give me the body of Jesus and I could take care of the burial, or he could whip me beyond recognition and nail me to a cross. And he literally pleads with Pilate. It's as if he was saying, please, 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 sir, please, sir, let me take the body of Jesus down from the cross so I can bury him. This was a risky risky move. And in doing this, he exposed his hidden identity as a disciple. He, he did that. Pilate could have easily arrested, prosecuted, and crucified him. How did Pilate respond to Joseph's bold and daring request? He gave him permission to remove the body of Jesus. I mean, he did precisely what Joseph probably prayed for on the way over to the praetorium. And in verse 38, it clearly says that. So he came and took away the body. So he he leaves the praetorium, he goes back to Golgotha, and he gets the body of Jesus. And And it says that he had help. Look at 39 and 40. Nicodemus also, who earlier had came to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, we first heard about Nicodemus back in John 3. He was a Pharisee, ruler of the Jews. He was a teacher of Israel. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, but he actually outranked Joseph of Arimathea. He had a higher position. He was called the teacher of Israel. He had a higher position than Joseph. Joseph was in the same club with him. We know that he came to Jesus at night to talk with him. We see that in verse 2 of John 3. Uh, and Jesus taught Nicodemus and everyone who reads that gospel or hears it preached, he taught us how we must enter the kingdom of God, uh, what it means to be born again, or how people are born again by the Spirit, and why actually Jesus came into the world. We see that through verses 3 through 21. And all of the things that Jesus taught Nicodemus in that moment basically contradicted Nicodemus' view of salvation. Uh, he believed he had to earn it, as most Jews do even today. I believe he walked away from it a bit confused. I don't think he was a believer at this point. He was wondering, well, he just destroyed my entire religion. What am I supposed to do with this? We see that in verse 4 where he can't figure out what Jesus means by being born again. But I do believe that the seeds of the gospel were planted on that night because Scripture reveals a change in his behavior In chapter 7 of John, verses 50 through 52, we see Nicodemus defending Jesus by trying to force the Sanhedrin to follow judicial protocol. Uh, They wanted to basically put Jesus to death without any sort of trial. And Nicodemus was one who stepped up and said, Hey, we need to follow our own laws. We need to follow our own protocol. And they were like, What are you, a Galilean, too? But for the most part, we see him protecting Jesus. That's interesting. There's transformation behind that, I think. I've never really seen. Unbelievers defend Jesus. They attack him endlessly. And then in our text here, we see him bringing spices and lotions for Jesus' burial and and even helping Joseph prepare and wrap the body of Jesus. You know what Nicodemus did here? He also put himself at risk. He put himself at risk by exposing himself, by involving himself in the burial of Jesus. If his peers found out about his involvement with the burial of the Nazarene, they would most certainly put him out of the Sanhedrin. They would put Joseph out as well. In fact, there's legends that are out there. There's rumors that are out there that were, you know, began to be swirled around about this time that, that both of those men were highly persecuted after this event. We don't know for sure. I, don't, I can't really find it in the, the annals of church history, but there are legends and rumors that say that these men were grossly persecuted after this event. Maybe. But I'll tell you what. Dan and I have talked about this several times. We've always wondered if Nicodemus was actually a real believer. We say, in John 3, no, he's confused. In John 7, maybe. And then we look at this text that we're looking at with him coming with the spices, and we say, that's an even greater sign. But the convincing proof is in the text. We're going to settle the debate today, just so you know. You may say, I'm not willing to settle it. Then don't. But I have no doubt that he was a believer. The most convincing proof of Nicodemus' conversion is found in the detail, and it's one of these gems of a detail. It's right there in verse 39. It's the weight of the material he brought. It says about 75 pounds in weight. He brought 75 pounds worth of myrrh and aloes, these exotic, expensive spices to anoint the body of Jesus. We're talking thousands and thousands of dollars worth of material here. It's not the value of the materials that's the kicker and the convincing thing, though. It's the weight. Why? Because no one ever used 75 pounds worth of those things to bury a regular person. This is king level burial material. 75 pounds is the measured weight that you would use to bury a king. What does that tell you about Nicodemus? He didn't come with 15 pounds. He didn't come with 10 pounds. He didn't come with 35 pounds. He came with 75 pounds the king's weight of myrrh and aloe. He believed Jesus is the king of Israel, is the king whose kingdom is not of this world. Nicodemus believed. He did. He had to have. He and Joseph, in the amount of time they had, gave Jesus a king's burial. When's the last time you heard of an unbeliever even thinking of Jesus as king? It's the weight, my friends. That's why that detail is there. John wants us to know the change in Nicodemus. He wants us to know the change in Joseph of Arimathea and how these men were secret disciples and hid it, but how they came out in the public with it. That's what he's telling us here. Joseph and Nicodemus prepared Jesus' body by wrapping it in linen cloths with the spices. They wrapped his body from head to toe. That's what they did. It was almost like a mummy, but not as tight and intricate as the, as the Egyptians would do. And more spices were then packed around and under his body once it was placed in the tomb. Unfortunately, these preparations reveal a deficiency in their faith. There's no doubt they believe, but they're kind of like the 11 disciples, right? You know, his guys that became apostles. They believed Jesus is Messiah, but they didn't understand certain things about him. Think about it. If they believed in Jesus' consistent teachings about how he'll rise in three days, would they have gone through all these preps? No. They wouldn't have gone through all that trouble to prepare his body as if he were to be in that tomb forever and ever and ever. And so it reveals a deficiency in their faith. But they still had faith. They just didn't understand the rising part yet. And his own disciples didn't. When Jesus came to them, they were like, whoa. They didn't get that. I mean, it just it wasn't something they understood. Now we move to 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So at Golgotha, there was a garden which served as a burial site or a cemetery. And interestingly, the potential crucifixion site I mentioned last Sunday, Gordon's Calvary, It actually has an ancient garden, a garden that is still there, and it has tombs that are carved out in the side of the wall of that hill there. Uh, So I I think that maybe it is Gordon's Calvary. Maybe that's the actual location. It's got all the, the signs and markings of it. I don't know. It could be. According to verse 41, in this garden there was a new tomb that had been recently cut from the stone or out of the stone. It actually belonged to Joseph of Arimathea, Matthew 27, verses 59 through 60. Joseph of Arimathea was an older man at this time, and I believe he probably purchased the tomb for himself. Yeah, he was setting up things for the rest of his family or whatever. I got my burial set up or whatever. He was a responsible uh, man, and he did that. I think he purchased all that for himself. He had that cut for himself. He paid the money to do it. And now it was very, very late in the day and the sun was beginning to set, Joseph and Nicodemus had to bury Jesus before sundown if they wanted to avoid breaking Mosaic law, right? Remember the rule. They had to have him in the tomb before the sun goes down completely. Plus, and this is another detail, the Sabbath would begin at sundown because a day according to the ancient Jewish calendar was sundown to sundown, not midnight to midnight. So the next day, Saturday, would begin at roughly 6 p.m. on that evening. So that's the Sabbath day. So they had to have him buried because of the Mosaic law and because they did not want to break their tradition of working on the Sabbath, right? They were in a full-fledged hurry here to get this done. If they had failed to get his body in the tomb and all that, they would violate both Mosaic law and the Sabbath. So pressed for time, Joseph decided to donate his tomb to the Lord. He was like, hey, I've got a tomb right here. It's perfectly fine. There's nobody in it. It was empty. It was new. Why do I say there was no one in it? Because back then families would put five, six, seven loved ones in one tomb. Kind of like we do at the cemetery where we buy four or five plots, whatever, or maybe one and two for mom and dad. We do that, right? They did the same thing then. They'd put multiple bodies in the tomb. In fact, I think there was probably a few other bodies in Lazarus' tomb. But when Jesus called for Lazarus to come out, he's the only one that came out. Nobody else went, hey, what's going on here? They stayed dead. This tomb was new, this tomb was empty, and it was nearby. And so what happened? Joseph and Nicodemus took Jesus' body, they prepared it outside of the tomb, and they placed it in that tomb. And right in that moment, you had the fulfilling of yet another Messianic prophecy in the Old Testament. It speaks of Messiah's body being buried and laid in a rich man's tomb. We find it in two places. Psalm 22, that wonderful Psalm, 22, verse 15, and in Isaiah 53, verse 9, Psalm 22.15 says this, and this is like Messiah saying this a thousand years later, you lay me in the dust of death. That has to do with the burial of the Messiah. And then Isaiah 53.9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked. That's regular man. He's not regular man. He's Christ. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. There's the idea of him being buried in a rich man's tomb. Fulfillment of prophecy back to back right there in his burial. Now I must close and I must do it quickly. Why is the burial of Jesus important? Well, hopefully you've already gleaned answers through this exposition, but I'll just give you a few here. First, the burial of Jesus is important because it affirms the reality of His death on the cross. Right? His body would not have been laid in a tomb if He were still alive. When people push the swoon theory and make it sound like He was alive in the tomb, they, what they're basically stating is that ancient people were stupid and ignorant and couldn't tell the difference between a live body and a dead body. They could. So the burial of Jesus affirms the death of Jesus on the cross. If we don't have a dead Jesus on the cross, we don't have sins paid for, we don't have the sacrifice, we don't have an atonement, we don't have redemption, we don't have the wrath of God being appeased, we don't have the law being fulfilled, we don't have righteousness, we have nothing if he doesn't die. And so the burial does what? It proves that he died. That's why it's important. He died on the cross. He was dead. Pardon my French. He was dead as a doornail. The fact that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit proves that he was dead. The fact that none of his bones were broken proves that he was dead. The fact that his heart was pierced with a spear proves that he was dead. Even if he wasn't dead at that moment, he would have been after being pierced. The fact that John was there and saw him die proves that he was dead. The fact that Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for his body proves that he was dead. The fact that Pilate had a centurion examine his body to make sure he was dead after Joseph of Arimathea came to him, Mark 15, through 45, proves that he was dead. The fact that Nicodemus spent a small fortune on spices for his burial proves that he was dead. The fact that Joseph and Nicodemus prepared his body totally and absolutely proves that he was dead. If Jesus were to wake up, don't you think he would wake up with a bunch of people rubbing stuff all over him? Come on. The fact that Joseph and Nicodemus buried his body in a tomb proves that he was dead. And the big kicker, the fact that all of those messianic prophecies concerning his death were fulfilled proves that he was dead. What's my point? He was dead he died. He died. The evidence is overwhelming. The swoon theory is the product of unenlightened sinful imaginations. When we say we believe in the burial of Jesus, we are affirming the reality of his death on the cross as well as the historicity of scripture. That's the first thing. Second, the burial of Jesus is important because it fulfilled messianic prophecy thus proving that Jesus is who he said he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the divine Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of the Jews, the King of a kingdom that is not of this world, and so on. When we say we believe in the burial of Jesus, we are affirming the prophetic accuracy of Scripture. And lastly, third, the burial of Jesus, and this one's not in John's text, we find it in Romans. The burial of Jesus is important because it represents something about us. Pay close attention. In Romans 6.4, the Apostle Paul says, It is impossible for believers to continue to live a life of sin because they have been baptized or immersed, is what it means. Not with water, it means immersion, spiritual immersion, because they have been immersed in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Being immersed in his burial has to do with being removed from our old life of sin. Our old life, who we were, is not only dead, but buried. Since we are now joined with Christ, since we are new creations, we cannot go back to it. We cannot return to our old life of sin. It is covered with earth. When we say we believe in the burial of Jesus, we are affirming the fact that our old life of sin is dead, buried, and gone. Burial of Jesus is important because it affirms the reality of his death, because it fulfilled messianic prophecy, which proves he is who he said he is, and because it represents something about us. Our old life of sin is dead, buried, and gone. That's why it's important. Maybe you'll never look at it the same way again, I hope. I'll close by reading a quick section in Romans 6, the same text. After describing the fact that we have been immersed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus through faith, Paul gave the following exhortation in verses 11 through 14. This is from the NLT because I don't have time to teach it and describe it. The NLT breaks it down pretty simply. It says this, Consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right. For the glory of God, sin is no longer your master, for you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace.